It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. There are first responders like police, firefighters, and paramedics. And then there are first responders who are the people who actually experience trauma firsthand. I like to think about being able to be of help when help is needed. How faith-based organizations in Colorado are answering that call. Plus, young members of the Southern Ute Indian tribe visit Garden of the Gods. Our people were here, and it's important to let our youth know that we are still connected to this area. Then, insight into a new Olympic sport, three-on-three basketball. You use, like, every muscle in your body at all times. A first-timer's trip to Colorado's Casa Bonita. It smells like a pool. And remembering the actress who brought Violet Beauregard to life in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. You still may need someone to put on pressure while you put the tourniquet on, okay? Let's get it stopped as soon as possible. Sometimes it takes a little bit to get that tourniquet ready. That's the sound of first responders learning how to stop bleeding during an emergency. But these are not firefighters, EMTs, or police officers. These first responders are priests, preachers, rabbis, and other members of faith-based organizations. Rabbi Steve Kay's goal is to get them to understand that call to action. Welcome to the program, Steve. Thank you, Avery. Great to be with you. You serve as the regional disaster spiritual care advisor for the Red Cross in Colorado and Wyoming. Talk about what spiritual care means. One of the wonderful things about working with Red Cross is Red Cross has an outstanding mental health component. Um, one of the things we've recognized over the years is people often have a faith or a crisis of spirituality. And the question is, without promoting any religion or faith base, because Red Cross has always been neutral on that, how do we help people access their faith based if they're religious or if they're just spiritual, as so many people are here in Colorado, they're spiritual but not religious. How do we help them access that in the moment of crisis? And a crisis could be a burning of their house. It could be a flood. And we see the floods about to happen here around the United States. Or unfortunately, in Colorado, we've had too many shootings in either public spaces and schools, movie theaters, and unfortunately, houses of worship. And I think it's interesting that you also mentioned that there are people who are spiritual but not religious. How does that affect what you do? Well, I think one of the things that we all recognize is um, in every house of worship, everyone's looking at membership numbers. And we know that the Pew Research Foundation, their recent study shows the largest growing religious denomination are called people, SBNRs, spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. And here in Colorado, because so many people just connect with nature and they say, you know, God or being outside is that. And the notion is that um, human beings by their very essence are spiritual people. And the question that we try and do, and this is why we don't call them chaplains, we call them spiritual care advisors, is we try and help people access what gives them hope, what gives them resiliency when moments of crisis occur, and how do we help them find a new north? Because whenever a crisis happens, one's compass spins. And our goal is not to say, God will make this better. Ours is, what can we do to help you find your new north? In your role with the Red Cross, you recently held a training session for faith-based organizations. And one thing you emphasize is that recognize that first responders are people who are present during an attack. Right. So I think with change of the language, we talk about what first responders are. People often think about first responders as being EMS, being fire, being the police officers. But the first, those are first emergency responders. First responders are the people who are next to you, the people who may be sitting in the pew in the church next to you, the person in the movie theater next to you, the person in the school. And our goal through this grant that Red Cross got was to be able to call ready preparedness, was to help train people in some very basic CPR, hands-only CPR, 
and bleeding control. One of the things that we know is someone can bleed out in three minutes or less. And so imagine you're cutting your Thanksgiving turkey and Uncle Jack comes in and gives you a little shove and there goes that kitchen knife and it cuts you. By the time EMS is there, you've bled to death. So we were teaching people tourniquet control, bleeding control, how to respond for not just crisis, but things like that. So our goal is everyone's a first responder, and then we have what we call emergency responders, which are our law enforcement, police, and fire. And you mentioned, so it could just be a Thanksgiving dinner. Responding to trauma isn't just about something like a shooting. It could be a heart attack at a church picnic or a knife at Thanksgiving um, or another type of accident. Right. And I think that's one of the things we try and do with, you know, we when parents, you know, my we're about to be grandparents for the first time and our daughter just said, where they took infant CPR. And I think there was an alien concept to people like my parents or your parents who thinks about infant CPR. So the notion is we really get people prepared. If you live here in Colorado, you're a new resident, in a certain time in the fall, someone's going to say to you, Avery, do you have the right stuff in your car? And you go, what do you mean? Even though you're coming from Alaska, we have a different kind of weather here. Do you have a shovel? Do you have a blanket? Do you have extra clothes? Do you have water? So preparedness is one of the most important things that Red Cross really pushes into our community and wants people to understand. We have a wonderful fire uh, alarm program that we go and install fire alarms in people's homes. It's, again, preparedness because it's better to be proactive than reactive. We spoke with some of the people who were part of the recent training, like retired Rabbi Shimon Moak, about why they were taking part. Just to be in touch with things that are good to know in any situation. I mean, I'm, I like to think about being able to be of help when help is needed. I mean, I carry the Narcan stuff in, in my car at all times in case I see someone overdosing on the street, um, things like that. He mentioned Narcan, which temporarily reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. And that really underscores what you were talking about, that this is about learning awareness in any type of situation. Um, one of the other aspects of this training is to talk about how a church, a mosque, a synagogue, or other faith groups can be both welcoming to strangers but still aware of potential threats. Right. So one of the things about what we call our active preparedness or active threat training is for people to look at the, what the new normal is. We always think about a house of worship, that our doors should be open to all people. But we know that um, sometimes certain people may be problematic. Um, they may have mental health issues when they pr propose a security risk. So we're training ushers and training other people, staffs, how to look for what are the signs that they might need to go to what we call yellow alert. You know, they begin to look cautious, and then what's the next step they need to do? So not to put up fences, but in the sense of how do we look at our surroundings, be safe and secure. It's no different than when you walk out of the supermarket late at night. You look left, you look right, and you walk slow to your car. And we're trying to say, be open, be hospitable, be faithful, be all those wonderful things, but at the same time, be prepared. So it may mean that we have a lovely sign that says, we welcome you to our congregation, but please ring the buzzer before we come in. It's no different than the front door here at NPR. It said, you know, welcome to Colorado Public Radio. Please push this button. We'd love to see your smiling face. I just made up a sign for you guys. <laughs> so, I mean, but that's the idea the, that having a locked door is not necessarily an unwelcoming door. Yeah, right. So the question is, how can you have that locked door and do it? The other wonderful thing that I just want to say is when we talk about preparedness is every participant left the training with a bleeding control kit. And many people are afraid of like, what do you mean? And we train people actually how to use tourniquets and how to use some bleeding control kinds of pieces of material. And so we distributed over 200 of those that day because of the great grant that we got at 
Red Cross Mile High chapter. And in the case of trauma, you're also purposeful about not calling people victims. Instead, you call them impacted individuals. Why is that? Right. Uh, you know, I, the question is, um, when anyone is, um, I've been doing law enforcement chaplaincy for over 25 years, and as soon as you label someone as a victim, someone takes on a victim mindset. And so what we try and think about from the disaster mental health and spiritual care is when someone is impacted by a tragedy, someone is impacted by an event that's occurred, it could be a death, it could be a fire, if you're a victim, you become helpless. So we want to change that language so people begin to think about themselves as being impacted by the event and that they have resiliency, which we talk about, and then we help them access tools to begin to recover. And that's why the language really makes a difference in the mental models that we create for people. So that language can even be a part of recovery. Correct. About 200 people from across the state and from many different organizations took part in that recent training. What's your sense about why they choose to get involved now? I think one of the things is um, Red Cross has always done a wonderful job of providing these trainings. This grant that we have, we were able to earmark some funds specifically for faith-based community. So we offer their regular traditional trainings that we do about CPR and bleeding control, but we also spend some time in disaster mental health, preparing your building, and then the unit that I was able to teach is on disaster spiritual care. We talk about not where is God, but when is God, and we talk about God's presence, and we try to couch some of this for those pastors and imams and priests and security personnel. When the question is asked, they say, how could God let this happen? And we often know it's not a question of theology, it's a question of pain, and so many people don't have the tools. You're not trained in this in seminary, how to begin to respond. So we want to create building blocks of language that no matter what your faith tradition is, you know how to dial into the access codes. If you remember a long time ago, you used to have to dial one to get your bell system, if you can dial MCI or Sprint, whatever. So one is a person of faith. And the next part is the area code. And how do we access that area code if it's Jewish, Mm -hmm. Christian, what Muslim, whatever it is. And then how we talk about local faith tradition. And we want to teach the people that It's okay to talk about this, and we can give you some basic skills. We've got about a minute left, and you've responded to your fair share of trauma, the shootings in Las Vegas and Pittsburgh, for example. How important are vigils after incidents like these? You know, a vigil is an event. It all depends if it's well orchestrated. And I think one of the key things is that people often need closure. One of the things that we know when after there's death, you know, people come and surround you. So after a critical incident, either through critical incident stress management called CISM or vigil or some kind of gathering, people can come and have the start of the process towards closure. There never really is closure because there's always anniversaries of those events. So what we look to do is to say, how do we move to the next steps? Rabbi Steve Kay is the Regional Red Cross Spiritual Care Advisor for Colorado and Wyoming regions. One of their programs is to raise awareness among faith-based groups about how to respond during emergencies and after trauma. Garden of the Gods' iconic sandstone spires draw millions of visitors every year. But before tourists arrived, this area was, and still is, sacred to Ute people. A handful of young Southern Ute tribal members traveled to the area for culture camp last month. Before we were removed down to the reservation back in the mid-1800s, and we lived in this area, the Mowich Band of Utah creator put us here. 
That's Cassandra Atencio. She's a camp leader and works in the tribe's cultural preservation department. Her great-grandparents lived in the Front Range before the Southern Ute Indian Reservation was created. It's important because our people were here, and it's important to let our youth know that we are still connected to this area. The annual culture camp dates back to the 1970s, but this is only the second year it's gone on the road, teaching young people traditional skills in ancestral lands. The Southern Ute Indian Reservation is in southwest Colorado near the New Mexico border, but traditionally, bands of Ute people lived nomadically in a broad swath of North America. We always say that Colorado is in Ute territory, not that Ute territory is in Colorado, but that Colorado and parts of northern New Mexico and Wyoming and Utah and some parts of the panhandle of Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas, that they are, that's Ute country. And so that's the reasoning why we brought them through these areas. To know that our people are, are beyond the reservation, so they know that the reservation isn't all that, they, that we are. And that's the goal of Culture Camp, passing on traditional knowledge of place and skills to connect young tribal members and descendants. The five middle and high schoolers who attended learned about archaeology and identified plants and their traditional uses. They also practiced setting up a teepee. And along with that came, okay, well, this is the women did this, and this is how you, these poles have to sit. This is how we, the back then it was buffalo heights or deer heights elk would heights. also elk heights that would be the you know the covering. They you know all that in in putting the teepee together and just explaining the the cultural knowledge the and the traditional knowledge and um, letting them know this is how it's done. That's Edward Box III, the tribe's cultural preservation director. The trip made an impression on 17-year-old Jasmine Carboneros. My favorite place to visit is Garden of the Gods because it is very beautiful and the hike was amazing and I just love it up there. I asked her what she'll tell her friends and family when she gets back home to Ignacio. How fun it is and how amazing it is to travel and walk through the same places that our ancestors went. There is a marked difference between generations. Atencio and Box didn't learn these skills at culture camp. Our younger generation are not familiar with the door. No, we're not brought up traditionally like Cassandra or myself. We're kind of the last generation that were actually raised by those um, our, our grandparents who their parents are from this area. In that same line of thought, that's how I was brought up. But I was also brought up to say, this is who, you came from here. This is where your people were. My grandparents would take us on these trips. And we go, you came from here. This is who you are. Nobody can take that away from you. You know, we were horse people. You know, that's what you people do. We did beadwork. We did this. And you come over here. And it wasn't more a way of telling you. It was a way of showing you. When Atencio thinks of challenges that face young tribal members in connecting to their heritage, distracting technology jumps to mind first. But it's also tough that practicing traditional skills isn't a part of most Southern Ute kids' daily routine. You know, they're not connected to, it's not something that they do every day. And so that's a challenge, trying to, and maybe their families don't even participate or do something, you know, or maybe they do. And so they don't, but they don't understand it. And so that's kind of a, that's a challenge for us. But Culture Camp is all about showing. 
showing the younger generation what it means to be Southern Ute in the way that their elders showed them. Three-on-three basketball will make its Olympic debut next year in Tokyo, and the U.S. has a good chance of competing there. The Americans recently won the three-on-three World Cup gold medal in Amsterdam. Team USA will finish with their first gold medal here at the World Cup. The win gives the U.S. an automatic spot to play in the Olympic qualifying tournament. Kareem Maddox is one of the four-member team to capture the World Cup title. He played basketball at Princeton University and professionally in Europe. We were also fortunate to have him as a member of our Colorado Matters team just until a few years ago. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Kareem, it's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's nice to be back. What is three-on-three basketball? So three-on-three basketball is exactly what it sounds like. It's played on the half court instead of a full court. There's three players on the court for each team at any one time that you have four players um, on the roster because it's a pretty tiring game. So three-on-three basketball is exactly what it sounds like. Three guys against three guys on a half court. So does it move even faster than traditional basketball? It does. It does. So it's a little bit of a new sport and the rules have kind of changed. It's not, you know, your grandfather's three-on-three, you know, outside at the park kind of basketball. It's continuous play. So there's a 12-second shot clock. There's no checkup. So there's no stoppage of play in between scores. So it moves really fast. Yeah. And how would you compare it to, you know, traditional basketball? Because you played at Princeton. How do you feel after a three-on-three game compared to, again, a traditional basketball game? Yeah, it's exhausting. Um, I feel like way more tired. I mean, there's times in five on five basketball where you can make a few trips up the court without having to ever really do anything. Whereas in this game, in three on three, you're just always moving. You're always playing. You're always exerting effort. It's a really physical game. So you're always like, you know, kind of like grappling with someone on the other team for position. So it's like you use like every muscle in your body at all times. And so you you see a lot of subs. You know, we sub ourselves out every single opportunity that we get. So if the ball goes out of bounds, you know, we're usually arguing with one another uh, for who should come out of the game this time to get a quick break. And you're the ones deciding whether to come out or not, not a coach. There's no coach. Yeah, exactly. So you're not allowed to have a coach on the court. So exactly. So no coach on the floor. Did the game evolve out of street play, you know, playing in a park downtown somewhere? It's kind of being billed as like an urban sport. Right. Where you don't need kind of like the more formalized elements of basketball, you know, indoor hardwood. So I guess, yeah, it it is kind of seen as an urban outdoor sport, but just like a formalized version of that, if that makes sense. So it, it did kind of evolve from like, you know, I think one of the slogans is like from the streets to the Olympics, because when people think of three on three, they think of, you know, going and playing at the park with whoever you can gather up and you only have six guys. So you play three on three in the same way that the Olympics added beach volleyball Mm -hmm. as a complement to indoor volleyball. It's the more kind of urban street version of the sport. And it's just gotten more and more popular over time. What was the final World Cup match like? You defeated Latvia. Yeah, it was, I would describe it as a uh, as a dogfight. You know, those guys we are familiar with from playing three-on-three for the past few years. So we know them well, and we know they compete very hard. 
and they're tough to beat. I mean, they're really athletic, uh, good players. You know, we were up, I believe, for most of the game. But, you know, it, we never could quite pull away. We were always, you know, a couple points ahead, one point, two point, three points ahead. But um, we couldn't just extend the lead further than that. So it made for a very nerve-wracking kind of game. It was like a defensive battle. You know, the rules of three-on-three three are it's first to 21 or 10 minutes, whichever comes first. And mm-hmm. this game only reached, you know, the final score was 18 to 14. So that's a kind of like <laughs> wrestling match defensive battle that it was. But you ended up winning, and your team's next step is to qualify for a spot in the Olympics. When will you compete for that? Sure. So, I mean, there's a lot still that's up in the air. You know, our goal and our <laughs> duty was to secure the USA a spot in the Olympic qualifying tournament. So that's going to happen sometime next year in the lead-up to Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. But who's going to be on that team is still kind of up in the air. But, you know, all we knew was that we had a chance to secure a spot for the USA for that tournament. But, you know, for us, we're just going to continue to play. Um, There's a few events coming up. You know, there's the Pan American Games in July. There's a whole professional circuit for FIBA 3x3, which, you know, myself and my team play on, not as a part of uh, USA basketball, but as a part of, you know, our own private professional team. So, you know, this summer is just going to be a ton of traveling, a ton of playing. And, you know, we might play in one weekend in, you know, Novi Sad, Serbia, and the next weekend we're in Chengdu, China. So that's what the summer looks like for us. So, Your day job is radio. You work in radio still since Colorado Matters. How do you prepare for this when you're working a day job and trying to practice basketball? I don't know. I guess it reminds me a bit of college, right? So being a student athlete um, and playing, you know, Division I varsity sport was like you just had to manage your time well. You know, the difference being that the time that I have to manage to play basketball happens in the early mornings and late nights rather than in the middle of the day. So, um, I mean, it's tough. I mean, it's a lot of travel. I'll leave on Wednesday night to fly to China and come back and be at my desk on a Monday, (laughs) Monday afternoon. But there's little tricks. So, you know, when I was a full-time athlete playing either professionally or in college, you know, I would have music on while I was working out. Now I'm listening to podcasts or radio shows while I'm working out for basketball, kind of killing two birds with one stone. You find ways to make it happen. But I would also say it's not unique. You know, there's a lot of um, Olympic hopefuls in other sports that are doctors, lawyers. So it's a path others have walked. And the dream is to get to the Olympic Games. So whatever it takes, you know, we're up to do it. Kareem, it's great to catch up with you. You too. Thanks for having me. Kareem Maddox is on the USA men's FIBA three-on-three basketball team. He also works for Gimlet Media in New York. Maddox spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. The U.S. won its first gold medal in the three-on-three World Cup in June. It goes on to compete for a spot to play in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, where three-on-three basketball will be a sport for the first time. Colorado Matters continues after the break with a newbie's adventure to an iconic Colorado restaurant where it's all about the experience. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. 
Life can be pretty complicated for people who have marijuana-related offenses on their criminal record from before legalization. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize. On the latest episode of On Something, what happens to the people who may be wondering why they're still on the wrong side of the law, even though the law has changed? Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. I moved here from Alaska a few months ago, and I've been checking off my Colorado firsts. I bought a Subaru, hiked a 14er, went to a Red Rocks concert, and I heard about an iconic Colorado restaurant that I had to check out. Wow, Casa Bonita! Woo-hoo! What's Casa Bonita? Dude, haven't you ever been there? It's a big Mexican restaurant, but they have, like, cliff jumpers and Black Bart's Cave and all kinds of stuff. It's like the Disneyland of Mexican restaurants. South Park describing it perfectly there. The legendary Mexican restaurant started in Oklahoma, but the Lakewood Casa Bonita is the last one standing. To celebrate the restaurant turning 45 this year, I went to check it out. It smells like a pool. Diver Anthony Provost greets me. He's worked at Casa Bonita for the past five months after a friend told him about the job opening. He said, you should come and check it out. You'd totally be a shoe-in, especially with your gymnastics background. So I came in and had a little audition, and uh, he gave me the job like on the spot after that. It was pretty cool. What did you have to do to audition to be a diver? There are five basic dives that are necessary that we do in the dive show. So I had to do all of those, do a little bit of acting, too. That wasn't like the main portion of it. They want to make sure you want to di- you can dive first. And then honestly, it's just the getting over the scare factor of how high you are. Because I'm not used to diving from platforms or anything like that. So that especially that layout dive, I got up there and I looked down. And I was like, are you sure this is good? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to live? And what's your favorite part about this job? It's so entertaining. I love like acting with the uh, stunts and the entertainment staff. And the kids just go crazy for it. It's just so much fun, like, seeing them and getting, like, high fives all the time from these little kids. Like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Entertaining isn't all divers have to do. With a pool in the middle of the restaurant, sometimes they have to rescue things that fall in. I can tell you right now, there's a, first of all, there's a lot of coins in the bottom of the pool. Just random, random stuff. I think we had a banana peel fall in there a couple of times oh. that we had to get out. Chips. Chips. What do chips? Like, I mean, I'm imagining that you can't just, like, you can't pick it up. No, it's, uh, a lot of times it's weird because you'll come up from the dive pit and it'll be stuck to your face or something like that. That's the worst. Provost shares the dressing room with Don Mestas, who you heard there. I'm more of a wet stunt, so I do the shows. Sometimes I do the dry parts, and sometimes I do the parts where I get thrown in the water by Chiquita, or I... Chiquita is the gorilla. Yeah, the, the gorilla. So there's a part called Annie, and she gets her skirt ripped off, her wig ripped off. Oh uh, she gets pied in the face and then thrown in the water. <laughs> uh, getting pied in the face is where we use shaving cream. Oh, so it's not even sweet. (laughs) Oh, no, you don't want to go in the water with with sugar on your face. That is so gross. I've done that. It just makes your skin feel weird. And also, it's not really sanitary for the water. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) So shaving cream. Shaving cream is the best. (laughs) Costumes for all those different shows fill the dressing room. 
along with a bottle of cheap vodka they used to sanitize the Chiquita suit. It was just about time for the next gorilla show, and Provost and Mestas were getting ready. Do you want me to get into Chiquita? Do you want to be captain, or do you want to be captain? You don't know how to do captain? Okay. I mean, I can figure it out, but... It's up to you. I was prepared for Chiquita. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Chain. All right. Okay. Off to another show. While the performers did their thing, I explored the 52,000-square-foot restaurant with its waterfalls, bridges, and caves. This is Black Bart's. The sign says, maybe too scary for youngins, which clarifies it's one to five years. I'm good. I'm more than five. This might be scary for youngins, but it's clearly sized for them. Oh, we're inside of a snake. Oh, and a ghost! There is a ghost! I caught my breath from the haunted cave, got my fortune told, wandered past the old-time photo booth, and got a glimpse of the dive show underway. Oh, wow, he's going so high! He's like at the ceiling! The athleticism surprised me. Divers actually have to scale the artificial rock modeled after the cliffs of Acapulco to the top of the falls before plummeting 30 feet into the pool below. After the show, Don Mestas introduced me to some folks, like Jim McLaughlin. Today, he runs the snow cone stand. Jim's been here since the beginning, huh, Jim? Uh, six months after they started, yeah. Wow. 42 years, 43 years. When you first heard about it, how did they sell it to you? How did they explain what Casa Bonita was? In the beginning, they hired an actor by the name of Ricardo Montalban to do commercials. I do remember the very first time I came here as a customer, the line was out the door. Uh, probably waited an hour to get in. Uh, it was packed constantly. I was working in the graphic arts industry at the time, so I approached the restaurant about opening an old-time photo studio here in the restaurant. They liked the idea. We did it. And back in those days, it was wall-to-wall people, shoulder-to-shoulder, all day, all night. The restaurant would close at 2 or 2.30 every afternoon. They would reclean the restaurant, open it back up at 4.30. In between the 2.30 and 4.30, the line used to go down the plaza four deep all the way down to where J.C. Penney's used to be. And what keeps you here? Why is this a place you've dedicated decades to? Uh, I've made my living here for 42 years. <laughs> I retired two years ago, moved to Florida. It's too hot in Florida in the summer, so I come back here and work in the summertime and go back to Florida, and my manager takes care of the business the rest of the year. The one thing I haven't done yet is eat. Mestas recommended the chicken fajitas, sort of. We always say you go to Casa Bonita not for the food, you go for the experience because the food is, it's not, <laughs> it's not really too much like Mexican food. I got in the cafeteria line, which is usually how you enter the restaurant. What can I get for you? Uh, fajitas. What kind? Chicken fajitas. Chicken? A tray? Do I wait here or go down the line? Right here. Okay. I'm gonna make a fajita. I got the tortillas. They come in a Ziploc bag, but they look like good tortillas to me. Big moment. Ready to try my first Casa Bonita food. 
I don't know. I don't know how honest I need to be. It's a pretty mediocre fajita. Well, like Don Mestas told me, you don't go to Casa Bonita for the food. But maybe for the sopapillas and honey. The iconic Lakewood restaurant has been serving patrons for 45 years. But for me, it was a Colorado first. The Central City Opera tests its limits with Billy Budd this weekend. The opera has a large cast and a large orchestra. But the Central City Opera House itself is, well, not large. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains how they make it work. We're ready, maestro. Thank you. The Central City Opera's rehearsal hall is bigger than its stage. So they've placed strips of heavy tape on the floor to mark the dimensions. Think of an NBA basketball court. Now have that. That's about how much room a chorus of approximately 40 men has to fit in. They easily fill it, both with their bodies and with their sound. I've seen many operas and have witnessed how powerful the human voice can be. Yet I wasn't quite prepared for the mighty sound of 40 people singing clustered close together. I had to adjust my levels many times. Add about another 15-plus male voices to that, and you have the full Central City Opera cast. Billy Budd will be probably the most number of people that we've actually had on the stage singing at you at one time. That's Central City Opera director Pat Pierce. It's going to be quite something. Pierce has wanted to bring this opera to Colorado for decades. It was the first Benjamin Britten opera that I became familiar with. And I've always been fascinated by the music and the story. Billy Budd is based on a Herman Melville novella. It's about a young, naive sailor with the British Navy in the late 1700s. He has the best of intentions. But things take a dark turn after one of his superiors accuses him of mutiny on this crowded warship. The initial roadblock with doing this opera in Central City was the orchestra pit. It's also small. Britain composed this work with a large woodwind section. There's also a timpani in there. No way would it all fit. I asked permission from the Britain Peers Foundation in the UK to have a reduction of this orchestration done for Central City Opera. The foundation eventually said, yes, this would also make it possible for other venues with smaller orchestra pits to mount the show. Peers asked Ken Kazan to direct Billy Budd. He's a Central City Opera mainstay, going into his 18th season. It took some juggling to configure this cast on the small stage. I think I spent nine full hours with the battle scene. That's when everyone is on stage, plus drummers and two large cannons. And Kazan says the scenic designers had to rethink a key design element. It was, would have been ridiculous for us to try to put a main deck and a quarter deck of 1797 man-o'-war battleship on stage. He says instead, the stage's floor resembles planks on a ship. There's rope on stage to give us a flavor. And they also use projections to bring the sets to life and set the mood. The first thing we see are these ropes coming in, and they're kind of snaky. And then they go kind of green, and we have bubbles. And all of a sudden, we're underwater and at sea. This all works well, since much of the opera actually unfolds as flashbacks. The character of Captain Veer is remembering what happened to Billy Budd. 
So Kazan took a surrealistic approach. Because it's a memory piece, it's not real. It's very subjective. Daniel Norman plays Captain Veer. He says the small stage is perfect for this opera. You know, you read in contemporary accounts of these battleships that they were extremely cramped and that you would have hundreds of people in a very small, tight space. He's done Billy Budd in much bigger houses. And one thing you lose is that sense of claustrophobia. So this space helps him get into character and brings an authenticity to the work. There's this one scene, though, where that authenticity can hurt. Director Ken Kazan explains how, toward the end of the opera, the chorus surrounds Captain Beer. And they are just shouting this unbelievably triple forte passage, super loud passage in the piece. He could see Daniel Norman squirming. And then when we were done, he said, any earplugs? Oh, wow. Physically painful on that, yeah. Norman gets his earplugs for rehearsals, because it's not like the director would ever tell the chorus to take it down a notch. What might be uncomfortable for him can be very powerful for the audience. That's how Kevin Burdett sees it. He also stars in the show as the villain John Claggart. You just feel it resonate in your cry space, and you feel it sometimes resonate right in where your heart is. Yes, in this intimate opera house, you can feel the music vibrate through your body. And Burdett says, when you feel that, that's opera at its best. In Central City, I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And finally today, we remember the actress who brought the gum-chewing character of Violet Beauregard to life. Violet, you're turning Violet, Violet! What are you talking about? I told you I hadn't got it quite right yet. You can say that again. Look what it's done to my kid! Denise Nickerson, perhaps best known for her iconic role in the classic film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, died this week. She was 62. Nickerson lived in Denver. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with her in 2016 about her memories of making that classic film and working with Gene Wilder. None of us were allowed to see the chocolate room until Gene opened the door. And if you recall, we were at the top of like three sets of stairs. And that room was self-contained in one soundstage, the river, the Wonkatania, the water, the chocolate waterfall, mm. um, the Oompa Loompas, all of the trees with the candies. It was all one building. It was on screen when you see it on the big screen. It'll never look as good as it did to me that day. Hmm. I was just astonished at what they had created. I mean, this is 1970 when we filmed this, so we didn't have any of the CGI technology, none of that. Um, But what they created was unbelievable. It just, it was unbelievable. And they wanted to, I guess, capture... Your true surprise as they opened they the door. They did, and there was I be, no no acting in me. All of us were amazed. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. I mean, really, it was like Disneyland. And then when we're running through, and Gene is kicking the the ball and singing that gorgeous song, um, Gene was asked once by an interview. How do you get along with the younger set? And he said, you mean the the kids, the five kids? And the interviewer said, yes. And Gene said, four of them are wonderful. One I'm going to shoot tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And that, of course, was was my TV. He was 
11 at the time, and the rest of us were 13. Well, at that age, there's a big difference. You don't want that little 11-year-old anywhere near you because you're trying to be 21 at 13, right? <laughs> and so we would just block him out, and he was a just a whirlwind on that set. On my scene where I blow up into the blueberry, there's a big bell jar full of wasps. And I believe they were supposed to be bees making honey, but it was filled with wasps. Okay. And Paris, my TV, decided he wanted to pick that thing up. Oh and he lifted the bell jar, and the wasps went everywhere. You have never seen 200 people run so fast and empty a building. <laughs> it's the funniest thing in the world. Too bad we didn't get that on film. Yeah, funny. I'm not so sure about funny, but okay. Uh, what, it was, yeah. What do, you, what do you remember about the first time you met Gene Wilder? Because it, it was before that big chocolate fountain scene, right? It was. The first day that we, I met him was the, when we were at the factory and waiting for him to come out of the building. And we were sitting on the bleachers. Hmm. And so he comes out in a gorgeous outfit and then does the, the somersault. And that's the first time I met him. And then we meet at the gate and we all shake hands with him. And then we walk to that next doorway to go into the factory. Um, so are you saying are you saying the first time you met him, all of that was being filmed uh, 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 again, yes. trying to get your your true initial reaction? Yes. Wow. Um, Mel Stewart, who was the director, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, um, had the idea that he wanted this to be timeless. He didn't want our clothes to be dated. That's why they're so yucky looking um, and uh, he didn't want any landmarks that would date the movie and so that's why it was done in Germany and you can't really tell where it was shot you know you you, you don't know hmm. um, but it was done in Germany south of Germany in Bavaria and what an experience um, I was there for six weeks Depending upon your demise was how long you have to stay. That's right, because, uh, of course, along the way, uh, some not-so-good things happen to the children who won't won't good inherit the chocolate family. Good kids, and bad things happen to bad kids. I have one That's... question about the chocolate river you mentioned. Did it taste like chocolate? Do you really want the truth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, sometimes when we start telling people the truth, it kind of breaks their image, their memory. Uh -huh. um, it was actually colored water, and it was stagnant for eight, ten weeks. Oh, oh. And, oh, my Lord, it smelled terrible. And so the chocolate room, actually the film was actually filmed pretty well chronologically. Mm-hmm. And thank God we didn't do that chocolate room at the end because it was wholly smelly in there. Um, and when Michael Bolner, who played Augustus Gloop, had to fall into the river, 
people ask him, was it really chocolate? And he says, no, it was cold and dirty water. Gross. <laughs> he did not speak any English, only the lines that he says in the movie. Again, going for the authentic, the I suppose. Um, as as we mentioned, Violet Beauregard, your character was known for her gum-chewing habit. Here it is, gum ticket number three, and it's all mine. Tell us how it happened, Violet. Well, I'm a gum-chewer normally, but when I heard about these ticket things of Wonka's, I laid off the gum and switched to candy bars instead. Now, of course, I'm right back on gum. I chew it all day except at mealtimes when I stick it behind my ear. Violet. Call it, Mother. Now, this piece of gum here is one that I've been chewing on for three months solid, and that's a world record. How much gum did you chew while filming? I have no clue. Hundreds of pieces of gum. The interesting thing is I had just finished a TV, one of the first movie of the week TV show movies um, with Lee, Lee Grant and Gig Young. Oh, yeah, Lee Grant. Out in, yeah, it was out in the desert in Lancaster in California. And um, in that particular film, which took six, seven weeks to film, this girl blew bubbles throughout the entire movie. So she chewed gum the whole time. So I had seven weeks of chewing there. And I flew to New York, and I had 39 hours. I took the summer clothes out, put the winter clothes in, got on the plane for Germany, and then chewed bazooka for another seven weeks. <laughs> this was so when I got back to New York City, where I lived, yeah. I had 13 cavities. Oh, <laughs> so this it was, was prior to Trident. Yes, so this was not sugar-free. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Trident doesn't make the bubbles that... Of course, there's the classic scene where your character, Violet Beauregard, disregards Gene Wilder's warnings, Willy Wonka's warnings, and eats a piece of untested candy. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet! What are you talking about? I told you I hadn't got it quite right yet. You can say that again. Look what it's done to my kid! It always goes wrong when we come to the dessert. Mm. Always. How, just briefly, how did they turn you into a giant... Blueberry. It was done in two phases. First, they laid me down when I first arrived on a big white piece of paper with my arms up and my legs apart. And they drew like you draw around your hand, you know? Mm-hmm. So they drew my figure. Then they took a gigantic styrofoam ball and cut my figure into it. And so when I first start blowing up, it's a big rubber suit. Mm. Then you can see it changes into a hard ball. That's that styrofoam ball. I was in that ball, unable to move anything except my hands and my head for nine and a half hours. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, they have a 30-minute lunch period on movie sets. And everyone's headed to the commissary, and I can't. It took, took them an hour and a half to get me in the suit, into the ball. So they weren't going to take me out. So the director says, Han, come on over here, get a chair, and roll her every five minutes. So I would hang with my head down and drink some of the milkshake. And then he'd roll me, and I'd hang with my head back. And the guy didn't speak one word of English. It was the most 
weirdest experience ever. When they first put me in the ball, I fell over because I was top heavy. So they took me out and they put a cinder block in between my feet. So all day long that pulled down, particularly on my right arm and shoulder. And when they got me out of the ball, I had pins and needles in that arm for a week or so. Violet, what are you doing now? You're blowing up. I feel funny. I'm not surprised. What's happening? You're blowing up like a balloon. Like a blueberry. Ryan Warner speaking with Denise Nickerson in 2016. She played Violet Beauregard in the classic movie Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. She died this week in Colorado at the age of 62. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. Our producers are Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon, Max Weisick Newsfellow, Taylor Allen, and audio engineers Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, and Shane Rumsey, and Tasha Watts. Along with Ryan Warner, I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.